So how do you discern whether or not God is happy with you? Like pleased with you? Or how do you determine whether or not you're in God's will? I would say for a lot of Christians, they base that on circumstances. In other words, as long as it's smooth sailing and everything seems to be working out, God must be happy with me. If this is God's will, then all the pieces fall into place. You hear people talk like that all the time. I knew this was God's will because all the pieces fell into place. So if that's true, then conversely, if instead of smooth sailing, it's pretty stormy, and a lot of things don't make sense, then you'd have to conclude God's unhappy with you. And if instead of all the pieces falling into place, nothing really seems to be working out, you'd have to conclude, I must be out of the will of God. But here's the big question. Where does the Bible teach that? What if it was possible that the storms in life are actually just part of your calling? That's what we want to talk about. If you have a Bible, turn with us to Acts chapter 27. If you're new with us, we've been working our way through the book of Acts. Find ourselves in chapter 27. Paul is now beginning his journey to Rome to appear before Nero, the Caesar. We pick it up in verse 1. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in an Adramidian ship, which was about to sail for the regions along the coast of Asia... We put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. So the first thing we want to identify are the main characters. And the first thing we see is the final, what we've referred to as the we passages, So we've seen this several times in the book of Luke's, a book of Acts, where Luke identifies himself as a traveling companion of Paul. We did this. So exactly how Luke got on the boat, we're not told, maybe as Paul's physician, but he is on the ship recording eyewitness details. Now, Sometimes when we try to support the idea of the accuracy or the reliability of the New Testament documents as historical documents, we identify things that are more obvious, like 
how many documents, quality of the documents, date of the documents. We look at things like archaeology. But we also look at things that are far more subtle. Acts chapter 27 offers one of those passages. Nautical experts would say the accuracy of the level of details that Luke records as to what would have happened to a first century ship in a storm on the Mediterranean is unparalleled. We don't know of another first century document with this level of accuracy. As a matter of fact, even skeptics of the New Testament have to admit that the details in this chapter are unbelievably accurate. A second character is named Aristarchus. We know he's from Thessalonica. It is highly likely he came with Paul to deliver the gift from the church of Thessalonica to Jerusalem and has simply stayed with Paul all the way through this journey. He's now going to get on the ship, go with Paul all the way to Rome. While in Rome, Paul writes Colossians and Philemon. And in both of those books, he mentions Aristarchus, his companion, by name. So he obviously stayed with him all the way to Rome. History tells us he was ultimately executed by Nero for being a Christian. Third, you have Julius, who is a centurion, part of what we would call the imperial guard. He's on assignment like the king's police in order to get Paul all the way to uh, Rome, to Caesar. And finally, it's very interesting to read over this without noticing Paul and some other prisoners. So why would you ship prisoners? The answer is because at this time of the Roman Empire, when someone was condemned to death, they would often wait until there was a large number of prisoners condemned to death. And they would ship them to Rome in order to die at the hands of the gladiators for entertainment. So that is most likely what's happening here. So this is a really rough crowd. These are condemned men with nothing to lose. These are sailors. These are soldiers. The initial ship that would have left from Caesarea would have been a smaller ship intended to hug the coastline. So from Caesarea going north, they pull in at a port in Sidon. It's about 70 miles north. We'll go as far north as they can, and then they'll have to head west along what we would call the southern border of Turkey. But these small ships would stay really close to the shore, avoid getting out in uh, the big part of the Mediterranean, just work themselves up the coastline. Of course, remembering these are not motorized ships. These are sailboats, so they're at the mercy of the weather. Verse 4, 
From there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lucia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. So one of the things we're going to wrestle with is if this is God's will to get Paul to Rome, to share Jesus with the Caesar, why not make it smooth sailing? Let's get him there. Let's get this thing done. But rather what the text says is this was a slow journey. The winds weren't favorable. So they're just kind of creeping along. Once they start heading west, there's a north wind that starts blowing them out to sea. So they creep around the island of Cyprus as a windbreak in order to get some control. And they get as far as Myra. Myra was a uh, wealthy city, a significant port. And there they encounter a larger ship, much larger ship, from Alexandria. So Alexandria is in Egypt, and from Egypt would go north across the Mediterranean with grain and cargo. This was huge business. As a matter of fact, it's estimated that these ships from Egypt to Italy carried roughly 150 thousand tons of grain per year. So these are huge ships carrying massive amounts of grain. So these ships are big enough to go out into the open waters of the Mediterranean. So from the smaller ship into the bigger ship. Verse 7, when we had sailed slowly for a good many days, and with difficulty had arrived off Nidus. Since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete, off Salmon, and with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lasia. So they get in the big ship, they're heading west. When they get kind of around the coastline, they're hit with a wind that is driving them south. So they pull out, pull around the backside of the island of Crete. It's about 165, 170 miles long. So that provides like a windbreak. So they're creeping along this island because of the wind. Now notice what Luke says, slowly, with great difficulty. This is taking a really long time. Again, the question is, why? Why not make this smooth sailing? Let's get Paul to Rome. Let's get this done. They finally end up at a port called Fair Havens. It's about two-thirds of the way down the coastline of Crete, and they pull in there. 
Verse 9. When considerable time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than he was by what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there. If somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, close inshore. So they're in this port, and now the season is dangerous. So what does that mean? So it was always dangerous on the sea in the ancient world. But from mid-September to mid-November, it was very dangerous. As a matter of the emperors actually paid more money to get grain delivered at this time of year as an incentive because it was so dangerous. Luke mentions that Paul says it's dangerous because the fast has already passed. He's referring to Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, the Jewish feast in the late fall. So we're probably in late October. There is no chance they're going to get to Italy before winter. So Paul's trying to convince them to winter it here, to try to go further would incur damage. Now, even just the north-south of this journey is dramatically different. So if you were in Italy, traveling south across the Mediterranean, all the way to Egypt, 475 miles-ish, it would take approximately 9 to 12 days. If you made that exact same trip, only going from south to north, from Egypt to Italy, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 60 days. So everything was against them making it to Italy before winter. So Paul's a prisoner, but he steps up and tells them, Probably shouldn't go any farther. So one question would be, what makes Paul the expert? Some of you are thinking, it's a typical know-it-all preacher. <laughs> Grant you, preachers are a troublesome bunch. But Paul may have more experience on the Mediterranean than almost anyone on this ship. At this point, as close as we can figure, he's taken at least 11 voyages across the Mediterranean. 3,500 miles at sea. 
He's been in three shipwrecks. He knows what he's talking about. But the centurion listens to what would be the owner and the captain of the ship. And he takes their advice, which makes sense. Probably the ship's owner and captain is going to know more than the prisoner preacher. But they also probably have ulterior motives. Maybe safety isn't the highest motive. If they don't get the cargo to Italy, they don't get paid. They got a ship full of prisoners, they got a ship full of cargo. Let's get this done. So they're going to try to get around the island of Crete. So about 45 miles further to the west. But you start to go around the island, which makes you vulnerable to the northern winds if, it, if they hit you before you get in the port there. So a mild southerly wind creates the opportunity to sneak around Crete, get in the next port. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Eurekilo. And when the ship was caught in it, they could not face the wind. We gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. Running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis. They let down the sea anchor and in this way let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small, small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. So they start trying to make their short journey to the next port, and suddenly a violent wind. The Greek word that's translated violent wind is the word from which we get our English word typhoon. It comes off of Mount Eba, which was on the western end of the island of Crete. Seemingly comes out of nowhere. It's called a urakilo. It's made up of two words, a Greek word and a Latin word. Northeast, the northeaster. Of all of the winds that a sailor could experience on the Mediterranean Sea, by far the northeaster was the most feared. So now they have no choice. The wind is blowing the ship out to sea. And all they could do is ride it out. There's a little island called Clauda. They were able to swing in behind the island just long enough to have a moment to pull the little dinghy out of the water onto the ship in case they needed it. Then they took cables and wrapped them around the ship and cinched them down. It was called frapping in order to hold the hull together to keep it from exploding. 
And all they could do is ride the storm south. At some point, they're afraid they're going to crash in to the shore of Egypt, still about 200 miles away, probably. But in order to avoid that, they throw out a floating anchor. Think of it like a parachute. It floats and keeps the boat from blowing quite so fast. At some point, they start dumping off the cargo. Think of it as dollar signs. This is the only reason they're on the ship. So everything that they've experienced is now for nothing. If all the cargo goes overboard, there's no payday. So they would only do this if they're going to die. At least that was the fear. So over goes the cargo. Then the text says, over goes the tackle. Now this is not talking about fishing tackle. There are some things that should never be thrown overboard. The fishing tackle goes down with the ship. Tackle was a Greek word that referred to everything that wasn't nailed down. Get it off the ship. As a matter of fact, the reason the text says overboard with their own hands is Luke is making it clear. It's not getting washed off the ship. They're throwing it off the ship because they're in survival mode. Because of the storm and the darkness, they can't see the sun. They can't see the stars. There's no way to navigate. And essentially, all hope is lost. Verse 21. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men... You ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. So Paul stands up before the ship and essentially says, I told you so. I tried to tell you, you wouldn't listen to me. Now, probably the motivation is just to get them to listen. Credibility. I tried to tell you this. You wouldn't listen to me. But I want you to be courageous. Because an angel of the God to whom I belong, the God whom I serve, has delivered to me a message that I must get to Caesar. Therefore, no one on the ship will die. The ship will crash. We're going to lose the ship. We're going to end up on an island, but no one's going to die. So take courage. Again, it seems to me that raises some questions. Now it's confirmed what we already knew. It is the will of God for Paul to get to the emperor. The angel has just confirmed that. If that's true, why not make it 
smooth sailing. Why wouldn't the God who controls the winds and the sea blow them to Italy? Let's get on with this thing. Nero needs Jesus. There's nothing about this that makes any sense. I don't know how comforting it was to hear, by the way, the ship's going to crash and the ship's going to be lost. I mean, how long are you on Gilligan's Island waiting for another ship to finally get to where God wants you to go? Verse 27, but when the 14th night came, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And a little further on, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. But as the anchors were trying, but as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, You yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. So the ship is moving to the south. They probably hear waves lapping up against the shore and realize we're close to something. Soundings just meant they dropped a rope with a piece of lead at the bottom. It hit the bottom. They could measure the depth. So it's getting shallower, so we're moving closer to shore. So they throw out four anchors to keep them from crashing, hoping they survive till the sun comes up. For some reason, the sailors thought, this is our chance to abandon ship. So they're pretending like they're gonna drop the little dinghy in order to lay out the anchors. In reality, They are abandoning ship. Paul figures out what they're doing and says to the centurion and the soldiers, if they're allowed to abandon ship, no one will be saved. Who's going to land the ship if there's no crew on board? Now, again, Paul's the prisoner, but he's completely taking charge of the ship. The centurion then cuts the rope. The dinghy drops. And everybody's still on board. One additional note. Verse 27 says, when the 14th night came. In the late 1800s, there was a nautical expert, very familiar with this part of the world, decided to do research on what it would be like if you were on one of these huge ships this time of year, facing a nor'easter, and all the details laid out in this text, and did all of the calculations, and concluded it would take exactly 14 days to reach the island of Malta. 
The book is still available in reprints. It's called The Voyage and Shipwreck of the Apostle Paul by James Smith. It's just more evidence of the incredible accuracy of this text. Verse 33, until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation. For not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God. And in the presence of all, he broke it and he began to eat. All of them were encouraged and they themselves took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. At this point, it appears Paul, the prisoner, is now in charge of the ship. He calmly identifies. Take courage. My God has said, nobody's going to die. Everything's going to be okay. We've gone 14 days without food. So we need to take some bread. We need to calm down. We need to eat for our preservation. We need to build up our strength for the last little leg of the journey. So he gives thanks for the bread, he sits down, and he eats it. And all of them were encouraged and took bread and ate it. 276 people. I don't know how many in your mind you were imagining. That's a lot of people on a ship. And this is a really rough crowd. Men condemned to death, sailors, and soldiers. But by this time, Paul's got their attention. They listen, and they're encouraged. Verse 39, when the day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach. And they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest should follow, some on planks, others on various things from the ship, and so it happened that they all were brought safely to land. So the sun comes up, they see the land, and they see a beach area where they think they can run the ship 
aground. If you were to visit the island of Malta today, you would find it identified as St. Paul's Beach. You take all the description, the two seas, which means two currents, the rocks, the reefs, the beach. It's a perfect description of it. So they cut loose all the anchors. They're going for the beach. It probably wasn't a reef. It was more likely like a sandbar. They hit it. They drive the front end into the sandbar. They're stuck. The storm is obviously still going. It's beating the back of the boat up. The boat starts to fall to pieces. It would have been common practice for the Roman soldiers to kill all the prisoners to keep them from escaping. So that's what they're going to do. But Julius is determined to get Paul to Rome. So he calls it off. Those who can swim, jump. If you can't, grab something and float. And every single one of them makes it safely to the island of Malta. There we will pick it up next week. A couple of details as we wrap this up. One of the things we always wrestle with is through these situations in life, what's God's part and what's my part? Most of this was in the hands of God. The wind and the sea, the waves, the storm. Paul can't do anything about any of that. But he also didn't just sit in the hall pouting. First he steps up and he says, I'm just telling you, maybe we should winter here. It's pretty dangerous out there. Then he steps up and says, hey, take courage. The angel of the God to whom I belong has appeared to me. We're all going to be okay. Settle down. Take courage. God's going to take care of us. Then he gets word that the sailors are abandoning ship. So he gives word to the soldiers. And finally, it seems like he's running the ship. Hey, it's been 14 days since we've eaten. Let's all calm down. Let's take some bread. Let's eat for our own nourishment. Everything's going to be okay. So you have this tension between God's part and our part. In every situation, we have to try to discern. What is the part of this I can't control? That's God's part. And what part of this is my responsibility? And I need to do my part. But more to the point of what we're wrestling with this morning is how could this possibly make any sense? It's been confirmed for us that God's will is to get Paul to Rome to see the emperor. He's going to share the gospel with the most powerful man in the world. Why wouldn't God provide smooth sailing? Why wouldn't God 
get him there. Why would he make the trip so difficult that they run out of time and have to winter and wait all this time in order to get to Rome? If that isn't bad enough, you have this storm that blows them completely off course. They're farther away now than when they started. The ships crashed. They're all stuck on this island. How do we make sense of this? Oftentimes, in these moments in life, we don't get answers. But in this case, I would suggest 276 reasons. On that ship were 276 people that God loved. 276 people that Jesus died for. 276 people that needed to listen to what Paul had to say about his God. I can assure you, even though this was a rough crowd, Jesus loved them as much as he loved the apostles. The woman at the well, Zacchaeus, Nicodemus, anybody else you want to name. Yes, the mission was to get to Rome, but there was a mission en route to Rome that mattered to God. So you tell me, how bad do you think a storm would need to be to get the attention of this really rough crowd to finally be willing to listen to what Paul has to say. This is not new for Paul. This has been his whole ministry. If smooth sailing was the indication of being in the will of God, Paul's been out of the will of God his entire ministry. When he writes to the Corinthians, he tells them, you know, I've been beaten up more times than I can even count. Five times I've received 39 lashes. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned apparently to death, left for dead. God raised him back up. Three times he's been shipwrecked on the Mediterranean. Before this, Paul understands that sometimes the storms are just part of the calling. Sometimes this is what's necessary for God to accomplish his purpose. Sometimes things don't make any sense. Sometimes it feels like God is fighting against us. God, I thought you wanted me to go to Rome, and it seems like you're doing everything possible to keep me from going. Nothing seems 
to be falling into place. It doesn't mean God is mad at you. It doesn't mean you're out of the will of God. Sometimes there's things God is doing that we just don't understand. And we have to trust him. Would I rather have smooth sailing? Absolutely, yes. I would much prefer smooth sailing. But more than anything else, at the end of my story, I want my life to have mattered. I want to know I've invested myself in the things that will matter forever. I want to know that I diligently sought to be obedient to God's call on my life. And I understand. If that's the case, then it will include storms. Because I do understand storms are part of the calling. Our Father, we're so thankful that you love us, you've sent Jesus to save us, and you've called us to be proclaimers of that message to others. God, there were 276 people, a rough crowd on that ship that you deeply love, that you sent Jesus to die for, that needed to listen. There wasn't much chance of that without a storm. God, may we be faithful all the way to the finish line. when the sailing is easy and when we are in the storm. Lord, may we trust you in the most difficult moments of life. In Jesus' name, amen.